All right, y'all, God's providence, we are going to postpone Ty's baptism. We have a, uh, Nancy's mom had a little accident in her shoulder. She's having some problems, and so the other set of grandparents could not come down, and uh, we are going to love our parents and postpone that a little longer. So news will be upcoming of his baptism in the future. Let's turn to uh, Galatians chapter 3. We're almost, I mean, I'm ahead of schedule, so I'm very, very excited. We're almost going to be done with chapter 3 of Galatians and are going to plow into chapter 4 before I head out for uh, vacation. So we are at chapter 3. This is the way we're going to be, and I know many of you, I know that Steve Eisenbarth has been the Bonhoeffer evangelist, passing out that 500-page book to whoever will read it. So you will follow along with some of the stories. What I'm going to talk about right here is is Bonhoeffer, after his 22nd birthday, this is the first time that he was on his own and away from his family. Now, I know for us, that's, that's, that's a little different. We're such a mobile society, and our, our kids go in different directions a little sooner sometimes. But in this particular culture, uh, it wasn't until he was 22 that he was literally now on his own. He had finished his Ph.D. after all the top German theologians in that country were fighting for him to be in his department, to get them in their program. I mean, these are, these are theologians that greatly impacted the United States, not necessarily in a good way. He is, uh, for the first time in his life, not a student. He's going into his first pastor in Barcelona in Spain. Now, while he's going there, he goes with a friend, and they stay for a week in France. And while he's in France, he says that something happened there that God used that greatly impacted his life for the long haul. Boy, wouldn't you want to know what that is? Don't you wish I'd tell you? All right, I'll tell you. Here's it is. He saw an, a tremendous picture of what he said of God's grace. So the question is, what's that picture? You know what that picture was? Prostitutes praying. This is his own words. You ready? He attends this church in Paris where he's visiting, and he sees several prostitutes in the church, and this is what he says. It was an enormously impressive picture. And once again, one could see quite clearly how close, precisely through their fate and guilt, these most heavily burdened people are to the heart of the gospel. I have long thought that Berlin's red light district would be an extremely fruitful field for church work. It's much easier for me. Here's the point. This is what I'm getting at. It's much easier for me to imagine a praying murderer, a praying prostitute, than a vain person praying. Nothing is so at odds with prayer as vanity. Now, what Bonhoeffer means by vanity is this. He means someone like ourselves that trusts in our moral goodness or our superiority over others. Now, Paul couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. In fact, Paul would say it this way. Nothing is so at odds with real Christianity than achievement salvation. And that's what we've been looking at in Galatians. In fact, one of the most influential PCA leaders today, this guy is the most influential, arguably the most influential person in the PCA. 
He gives this test for churches and he gives this test for pastors, for church planners. He gives a test for us to check ourselves and see, do we, are we planting the kind of churches Jesus would plant and pastoring the kind of churches Jesus would pastor? Here's what he says. You ready? Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing and the religious people of his day. That's a mouthful. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to today's churches, even the most avant-garde ones. So he would say even the ones that are, quote, on the cutting edge and seem to be edgy and whatever they are, they're not doing it either. So we've got to put away our stereotypes of different styles of churches. It's beyond that. It's bigger than that, okay? This is what he says. We tend to, churches in the United States, tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people, the licentious, the liberated, or the broken and the marginal, avoid church today. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners does not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus declared. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers in the parable of the lost sons, they must be more full of older brothers than we dare to think about. End quote. Welcome to the book of Galatians. This book completely challenges our view of Christianity. It challenges it in such a way that this, that a praying prostitute is closer to real Christianity than a vain, Bible-believing, chaste, sexually pure, tithing churchgoer. What a book. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians 3, we're going to look at 15 through 25. This is a major, massive passage. Let's try to keep up here. All right, we are shifting in at 15. He's, he's going to start right off the bat. I'm going to explain it later. So just fasten your seatbelts and jump in. Here we go. To give God a human, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. Aren't you glad when Paul says that? Sheepers. Thank you. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? Again, wonderful teacher. Why the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. It's added because of sin is what he's saying. Until the offspring that he already talked about in verse 16 should come to whom the promises had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. What does that mean? Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, 
Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this book. We thank you that this has been used of you in every major movement of your spirit in an exponentially great way. Romans, Galatians, it's always the recovery of the message in those two books, that are a heart of those two books, that not only revive Christians individually and personally, but revive churches corporately and communities powerfully and gospel movements that move beyond in great areas. And so, God, we thank you for we thank you for your spirit that runs like the wind in your word. And we ask that you would send forth your spirit, unleash heaven upon us now, so that we, as your word says, can have understanding so that we live so that we can see otherworldly realities so that we live, so that we are put back together so that we live. So, oh God, exalt Christ by exalting your word to us now, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is a massive section of Scripture. Good night. Massive. I mean, it's massive in its quantity. There's so many ideas in here that, We could spend weeks, but I'm not. Weeks we could spend here. And not only is there a massive quantity of ideas, the the quality of the ideas, the depths of the ideas plummet to the foundations of the universe. I mean, this is huge stuff. Massive. I mean, it pushes, this passage pushes the most experienced students of the Bible to the edge. Backs them against the wall. And then this passage of Scripture tends to run over the rest of us. It's like, well, whatever that means, let's just get on to something else. You know, it's kind of like when you go through Ephesians, and I've done this, I've been in many groups where everyone avoids Ephesians 1 and jumps into chapters 4, 5, and 6. Just get to the practical stuff. Who knows what's going on in Ephesians 1? Well, this is like one of those chapters. Just skip this and get on to 4 and 5, please. So here's our plan. Here's the plan. Because this is such a massive part of Scripture, how it's communicated to you is almost as important as the message itself. So I have a method to the madness of the structure. In other words, how I deliver this passage is almost as important as the point of the passage itself. So here's the plan. We're going to do a flyover of the passage. And I'm going to point out places of interest to you. I want you to consider me your personal tour guide of this passage. And we're going to go around, I'm going to go, look out to your right. Look out the window to your right, see the giraffe. I want you to see these places of interest. After we've seen these places of interest, we're going to move to the point of the passage. And then once we get to the point of the passage, by God's grace, we'll internalize it. 
what is the point doing to the hearers? That's how we'll end. Okay, so are you with me? So right now we're going to do the flyover. Right now we're all piling into the bus. And we're going to look at the places of interest in this text. Are you with me? All right, here we go. Here's how the text works. First, you're going to have to use your Bibles this time. If you don't have a Bible, look under the seat in front of you. Grab the, the black pew Bible. The text will be beyond the bulletin. That's in the bulletin, all right? Look at Galatians 2.16. This is how the text works. This is the mega point of Galatians. 2.16 is the cosmos packed in one verse. This is the mega point. Justification of life. This is the ultra, supra blessings of the Bible. I mean, everything that the Abrahamic promises talked about, 2.16 is their actual fulfillment. Paul links those two. It's justification in life. This is what every human being on the face of the earth is striving for, trying to obtain. This is what every human being longs for, craves, pursues, whether they're consciously aware of it or not. Justification in life hollows out this God-shaped hole in your soul. This is what drives you to lie, to lust, to be anxious. This is what drives you to be a prideful person, to be superior or inferior, condescending. This is what drives your relational conflicts, gossiping, slandering. If you do not obtain justification in life, you implode in your life. If there's no justification in life, in your life, you have no support to uphold the realms of your life and you implode. That's 2.16. How do you get this treasure of all treasures then? 2.16 is you're given justification in life. How do you get it? Is it by a path of grace salvation or by a path of achievement salvation? Which one's the real gospel? Will the real gospel please stand up? Is it by the path of Jesus' salvation or is it by the path of self-salvation? Will the real Savior please stand up? Is it by faith in Christ or is it by works of the law? Will real Christianity please stand up? Now, this is what Paul does. He takes that 216, and what he's going to do is he's going to prove his case of 216 from all these different angles. Okay? The first angle we saw in chapters 1 through 2, where he takes the angle of his own personal apostolic experience with grace and his own apostolic call. And for two chapters, he uses that as proof to prove 216. Okay? Then what does he do? Well, then he moves to the angle of the Galatians' own experience of grace. And that's in chapter 3, 1 through 5. To use that to bolster 2.16, justification in life. Then what does he do? Well, then he moves on to the authority of Scripture in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3. He takes his mega point, 2.16, and he says, let's prove it from Scriptures. And what he eventually does is he zeroes in on the MVP of faith. Abraham himself, okay? Now, there were texts that the follow-up team was twisting and using to support its view of salvation, 
And so in the next verses, which you will find in 10 through 14, Paul tackles those verses. There's four of them, four proof texts that the follow-up team was using to prove its gospel message. Two in Deuteronomy, one in Habakkuk, and one in Leviticus. And he zeroes in on what their handling of those verses ultimately do to you. They put you under a curse. Okay? And now, in 15 to the end of the chapter, he goes for the heart of it all. The law itself. So here's the deal. If Paul can prove that the follow-up team is mishandling the law, he closes his case on grace salvation. If Paul can prove that they are mishandling the law and using it in a way that the law is never meant to be used, in a way that God never intended it to use, to actually use the law to get you into 216, to actually use the law to give you the, the promises of Abraham, and then once you're in, to use the law to actually change your life, If he can show that that's not the case, case closed. And then what's left for the Galatian believers and for all of us who hear it, we can now either repent of our self-salvation and turn to grace salvation or not. And that's all that's left to be said. Okay? Do you get what Paul's doing? All right. So here's what happens. We're tackling the law here. And here's what you have to see about the law in the passage. If you don't see the stuff that we're going to talk about right now about the law, you might as well be in a spiritual canoe in the middle of Lake Waco without a paddle. Surrounded by 20-foot crocodiles that haven't eaten in weeks. And you're in a glass-bottom boat so they can count your calories. In other words, you're in a bad place. If you miss the sights, I'm going to point out the window right now to you about the law before we get to the point. Okay? So hang on. Here's the first point you've got to see. We're looking at window number one on the right-hand side. Here it is. Grace salvation is the epic story of the Bible, not the law. Look at verse 17. Remember, don't you love it when he says, this is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Another what he's saying is that, look, the law came 430 years after God made an official covenant of grace salvation. So the law comes 430 years after an officially established covenant that God had made that's based completely on grace salvation. So what he's saying is the law is the new kid on the block. And the new kid on the block doesn't kick the old kid out of the block, off the block. And that's why in verse 15 he says, look, even if we're talking about human covenants, even if we're talking about human examples, you don't make a human contract, a human covenant, and then it gets changed by a covenant that comes later. It can't happen. So even on the human level, we don't do this. So how much so on the divine level, if God sets in place an official This is the way the epic story of the Bible is going to be grace salvation. The law, when it comes 430 years after, doesn't knock that off the block. Right? That's his first point. And that's why he goes into verse 18 and he says, look, if the inheritance 
if 2.16, justification in life, if, if the promises of Abraham come by the law, then they don't come by promise. Then grace moves off the block. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. That's his point, all right? Now, second, this is a big one. This is huge. Verse 16, look at verse 16. Now, the promise was made, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Grace salvation is the epic story of the Bible because the blessings of 2.16, the Abrahamic promises, the Abrahamic blessings come from Jesus, not from performance or law-keeping. Do you see what he's doing here? Paul Paul makes everything hang on Jesus. What he does is Paul walks over and says, all the stuff that I just talked about in 2.16, he puts on Jesus' shoulders. All the stuff that was promised to Abraham way back when, he takes it and he puts it on Jesus' shoulders. He even goes so far as to say, listen, the ultimate party behind the covenant with Abraham wasn't even Abraham ultimately. It was Abraham's offspring. Jesus received 216 on his shoulders. Do you see what he's doing? In other words, Galatian friends, if you elevate the law in the epic story of the Bible, you lower Jesus. That's his point. Okay? All right, third, verses 19 through 20. This is the one that throws everybody in a Theological tizzy. Are you ready? 1920. For if the inheritance comes by the... No, that's not it. Why then the law? It was added because of sins until the offspring should come whom the promise was made. It was put in place by angels through an eating, by an eating, intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. This guy explains it the best, so I'm just going to use his quote, okay? This is a Bible scholar. His name's Stephen Neal. He says, here's the point. The promise of grace salvation came to Abraham firsthand from God. In other words, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, it's God, Abraham. But when God, when God makes the covenant of the law with Moses, it's three steps removed. God, angels, Moses, the intermediary, the people. See the difference? Here's the point. Grace salvation is the epic story of the Bible because the law was never meant to be the epic story of the Bible. It's secondhand. The law, the way the law arrived shows its subservience to grace. The way the law is given shows that the law bows to grace. The way the law is given shows that the law was given to serve the epic story of grace, not serve itself. In fact, if the law is elevated to the epic story, to serving itself, it disintegrates in its DNA. And that's why we get to verses 21, because this is what he says. He says, is the law contrary to the promises? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed Come by the law. In other words, the law cannot give life. The law cannot 
comfort you. The law cannot make you cosmically happy. The law cannot give you meaning in life. The law cannot raise you from the dead. The law cannot breathe the air of God into your lungs. The law cannot give you righteousness. The law cannot make you a fully acceptable person. The law cannot make you an approved person. The law cannot define your existence. The law cannot make you okay. The law cannot make you a somebody. Okay? It can't. Now, the law is, though, really good at one thing, according to this passage. Really good. And that's the point of the passage. There is one thing that Paul points out in this passage that the law excels beyond all others. And it was given for this primary purpose, according to this passage. Do you know what it is? Hold on before we get there. All right. One of my fondest memories as a kid growing up has to do with skiing in New England. Sure, snow's pretty cool for a day or two. And I like it when it melts, right? Yeah, it's cool screaming down the mountain at top speeds on two pieces of wood. That's cool. Yes, it was cool trying to get on a chairlift with a cute girl. All that stuff is cool, right? But my fondest memory has to do with a T-bar with my brother and my dad. Remember this, Dad? (laughs) Watching my dad and brother navigate the T-bar was quite an experience. Now, does everyone here know what a T-bar is? All right, a T-bar is a wooden piece of wood that comes down and it bows out like a T. And it's meant to grab you behind your hindsights. And you have a partner on each tee. And it's to take you up the mountain so that you can ski down the mountain. Tee bar comes right behind. It's meant to hit you right about the top thighs and right in your, your, your spots. All right? Now, there are tee bar commandments, though, that must be fulfilled or you're in trouble. Commandment number one is you cannot sit on the tee bar. If you sit on the T-bar, it will fall to the ground, taking you with it. It is attached to a pole that moves up and down. So the T-bar is not meant to be sat on to lift you up. It's just meant to drag you along. If you sit on it, it goes down to the ground. All right? That's commandment number one. Commandment number two is never cross your skis with the person next to you. If you cross your skis with the person next to you, it is instant T-bar death. Instant. And then the final T-bar commandment that everyone knows about is if you do fall down, roll out of the way as quickly as possible. If you don't roll out of the way, you will create a T-bar massacre. Body after body will pile up on the wreck that you started. All right? Now, providentially, I was on the T-bar ahead of my brother and my dad. God's smiling providence. And about a quarter of the way up the mountain, this is what I hear. Stop sitting on the T-bar. I knew commandment number one was being broken right then and there. And so I glance over my shoulder and I see my brother and my dad going up and down on the T-bar like a human yo-yo, right? No sooner did I turn around and I hear this. Hey, your skis are crossing into my skis. Get your skis on your own side. I didn't even want to look. 
But you know how that is. You just, I, I can't look. But you got to look. So I turn back and I look. And I catch just in time to see my brother and my dad entangle themselves in a human knot and then do a face plant right into the snow. Now, what did I say was the final commandment that everyone knows about? Roll. Roll out of the way. Everybody on the mountain is screaming, roll, roll, especially the people that are immediately behind them. Roll out of the way. I'm sad to report that it was the worst T-bar massacre in recent history. Body after body after body. It took a while for the operator down the slope to turn the switch off. And when he finally did, it it was just, it was a bloody mess. Now, a T-bar's primary purpose when handled properly is to lead you up the mountain. The law of God's primary purpose when handled properly is to lead you to Jesus. It never leads you to itself. Never. Look at verses 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law leads you to Jesus to be justified. That's the point. The law leads you to Jesus to get the stuff in 2.16, to get the stuff of the Abrahamic promises, to get the stuff God made you for, justification in life. Now, if you mishandle the law, it will be worse than a T-bar massacre in your life. It'll be worse than a T-bar massacre in your home. It will be worse than a T-bar massacre in your church. Okay? Now, the big question is, how does the law do this, though? How does the law lead you to Jesus? How does that happen? That's the big question in the text. The point is, the law leads you to Jesus to be justified. Well, how does that happen? Well, Paul answers it very, very clearly. Look in verse 19. Why was the law added? There's the answer right there for you. Because of sin. So how does the law lead you to Jesus? Well, the answer has to do because of sin. Look at verses 22 now. They make a little sense. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Something's imprisoning everything under sin. Something is holding everything captive in sin. Something God has given is designed to do that. I want you to find the word guardian in verses 24 and 25. Do you have them? 24 and 25, you'll find the word guardian. Some of your translations have pedagogue, some have schoolmaster. Now, those can be a little misleading because they tend to lead you in an educational direction when the intention here is not an educational direction, the intention here is a disciplinarian direction. A guardian was a servant 
in wealthy Greek and Roman families. And this servant had a specific role within the family. He was a guardian. He was a disciplinarian. So the Greek or Roman boy, he was a servant that was a disciplinarian for a Greek and Roman boy in wealthy families. So a Greek and Roman boy would never hear, well, wait till your father gets home. No, it was, Brutus, teach the boy a lesson. (laughs) All the good old days, right? So the guardian was part babysitter, part chaperone, and part probation officer. Ancient pictures of him always have him holding a rod or a cane. He was a, he had a PhD in discipline. Now, this was a temporary setup during the boy's formative and foolish years. So this was a setup. The guardian was set up for when the boy was in late adolescence and going through his teenage years before he became a man. And during this temporary time was when the guardian came in and had his shaping influence, major shaping influence in Greek and Roman boys. And obviously then a major shaping influence in the whole culture, Greek and Roman men, because they grew up to be men. But once they became man, a man, the guardian's role was done. His role was to serve this particular time, then lead them to something else. And then his time was over. Okay? So here's what happens. And I want you to miss this. I mean, we have guardians today. They're called coaches. So we have something very similar. You know, who's going to take care of the boys when the sports? The coach. Who's going to discipline them? The coach. Who's going to make them run? The coaches. So we kind of have something similar. So I want you to see, though, that the, the guardian was not just a brute. He did not normally, the guardian's relationship with the child normally was a good one. Normally there were real special bonds that were created between the guardian and the, and the child because the guardian, a good one, was really after the best interest of the child. The best guardians were really good friends because they were leading them someplace. They were leading them through those foolish, formative years to become a man. Okay? Here's the point. The law is God's appointed, as the text says, guardian or disciplinarian. Look at the words that are used here. It imprisons you. It holds you captive. It doesn't let you go. It makes you see that you're a failure. It makes you see that you are deeply flawed and messed up. It makes you see that you have no righteousness in yourself. It makes you see that you have no chance of being your own savior. And then it does this and does this relentlessly, not because it hates you, but because it's a very good friend, because this guardian, this law, holds you and holds you until it passes you off to someone else who justifies you. That's a good friend. Good friends always lead you to Jesus. The law is your best friend. Okay? Now, The primary purpose of the law, then, is to make us not look good, but actually to make us look bad. And not just in your neighbor's eyes, because they know you are, but in your eyes, 
because your eyes are the toughest eyes to convince that you really are bad. And the law is designed to make you see that. So that we stop trying to be our own Savior and turn to the true Savior who really is a Savior. That's the point of the law, okay? Now look at verse 16 again, in 3.16. Remember the promises here to Abraham are ultimately given to the offspring of Abraham. And and Paul tells us that this offspring of Abraham is ultimately Jesus. So the promises of 2.16, the realities of 2.16, the promises of Abraham are ultimately given to Jesus. Why? Why aren't they ultimately given to Abraham? Because ultimately Abraham needs to rely on grace salvation too. So what is being implied here is that what's really needed in grace salvation is is someone behind grace salvation that's actually accomplishing achievement salvation. See, what grace salvation needs to really work is for someone to actually do achievement salvation, for someone to actually pick up the law and keep every inch of it. Every righteous demand of it to keep it perfectly. And not only that, because it's being done for people that need grace, that means that the people that need grace don't keep the law. So the law's penal requirements require a death debt. So achievement salvation looks like someone positively keeping every inch of the righteous, perfect law of God and then paying the death debt. That's how grace salvation comes. So it's very interesting when when God was making grace salvation official with Abraham in Genesis 15, you know what he did? He went according to the ancient Near Eastern method at the time, the customs at the time of cutting a covenant. Animals were split in two. Blood, guts, death, animal parts split in two. And then what normally happens is the two parties walk through the animal parts sealing their binding relationship and visually sealing the fact that if man, if we don't keep our ends of this covenant, may we be torn asunder, may we be cut in two, we will be covenant breakers and that's what happens to you, okay? Now, at the climactic moment when parties are gonna walk through the covenant, God puts Abraham asleep. And God alone walks through the covenant. God alone puts the covenant of grace salvation on his own back. He won't let Abraham carry any part of grace salvation. I mean, he won't even let the law come in at this time, circumcision, because it doesn't come till two chapters later to be as a sign and seal of this covenant. So circumcision doesn't even come in at this point. And the law doesn't come in until 430 years after. No achievement salvation, no participation in terms of performing at all for Abraham. God alone walks through the halves. Now, many, many years later, there's an offspring from Abraham that comes on the scene. And this offspring goes up to the God of this covenant and takes that Abrahamic covenant out of the hands of God and puts it on his own broad shoulders and he carries it. And he goes to the law and he fulfills every 
Every iota and yittle of the law he fulfills. Everything. And then he goes so far as to pay the death debt. And how does he do it? He gets torn asunder. This great offspring from Abraham gets cut in half. He becomes a covenant breaker. So Abraham has his son that he's always longed for, and his name's Isaac. And Isaac is spared. And then the son of Abraham comes, and he's not spared. So that you, and so that me, we get grace salvation. We get justification by grace. We get justification by Jesus. We get life freely at the cost of a son. This should change us on the spot. For some of us, you are seeing Jesus and his grace salvation for the first time. And if you are, call out to Jesus. Say something like this. Jesus, you are my only salvation. You are my only righteousness. You died and were cut in two because you love me. Thank you. And my friend, if that is where you're at, paradise opens up before you. 216 becomes yours. You are now a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham. And then for those of us that are Christians, and we're beginning to get this grace salvation at a deeper level, this is what we need to do. We need to take this grace salvation and we need to bring it into every realm of our life. We need to bring it into our marriage. We need to bring it into our job. We need to bring it into our relational conflicts. We need to bring it into that area that scares the daylights out of you. You need to bring it into that area that you just can't deal with. You need to bring grace salvation into every realm of your life. The other change on the spot is this, and this is for all of us. Let's be a church that builds our lives and our mission around grace salvation. Let's renew ourselves to it. Let's do it. And that means that we're going to reach licentious, liberated, broken, and marginal people. Does that scare you? It scares me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, may we be that kind of a church that seeks and saves the lost. Now, change on the spot also means this. We need to always be in an ongoing growth in the Christian life, as Luther says, a life of repentance. So we need to be always well-versed in the vocabulary of achievement salvation in our own life. So at any time, you should walk up to me and say, Jeff, where do you struggle with achievement salvation? And I can say, I struggle with power. I struggle with control. I struggle with... uh, Approval of others, I struggle with, what else, honey? You know all of them. She knows them all. 
If I walk up to you and I say, what do you struggle with? Um, um, that's not good. You should know. Because you are a constant repenter. And the grace of God needs to be brought to bear on those areas of your life. And then we become what we've said since the very beginning when I came here. We're an unshockable people. We understand and we get sin in, in our lives, and we understand and we get grace in our lives. Okay? All right. The law leads you to Jesus to be justified. Follow the leader. Amen.